Um, I want to start our time out in the message today by rereading a passage that we started this series with. We're in this series called Practicing the Presence of God, and we started the first week with 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. And I think it's important that we do, we read this again, because this is foundational to our understanding of what spiritual growth or practicing the presence of God, actually living our lives in God's presence, doing these practices that we've been talking about, it's foundational to our understanding of that. So 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. Another verse that isn't going to be on the screen, but it starts out in, in verse 1 of Second Peter uh, chapter 1. He says, to those, the people he's writing to, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. He, he says these profound statements that one is that you've obtained a faith of equal standing with the Apostle Peter's through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. So that's one aspect of the gospel. Then goes on to say in verse 3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. He's granted us precious and very great promises. The idea is that what Jesus has done for us is, is, is hard to wrap your mind around. You've been given a faith of equal standing with the apostle Peter because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then his divine power has granted to you all things that pertain to life and godliness. So everything you will need for your life, everything you will need if you're pursuing a relationship with, with Jesus and growing in that relationship with him, everything you need for that has been given to you. It is a gift. And because that's true, then he says in verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, and then it continues on from there. The, the idea, of, when we think about growing in our relationship with Christ, moving from a place of immaturity to maturity, in our relationship with him. Everything you need is a gift from God. It's a gift of God's grace. You're standing before God, the ability to pursue him, the ability to grow. You know, any good thing that comes out of your pursuit of him is an absolute gift from God. But he says, because you've been given this incredible gift, make every effort to supplement your faith. Grow in your faith and make every effort don't make a small effort, don't make a token effort, but make every effort to add to your faith. And both of these things are important, and, and if we're going to overemphasize one, we're going to overemphasize the gospel being, because that's this critical piece that it's been given to you, it is a, has been granted to you, but the, the path to spiritual growth is not to just float, and just go like, I'm going to just stand here while God changes me. We, we need to make every effort now. And so the picture we were using for the first few weeks of the series, that if we are different ways of getting across the water, we are not a raft, just floating along, letting go and letting God when it comes to our spiritual growth. Um, we are not a rowboat. 
It's not all our own effort. We are not, it's not human-powered salvation, human-powered growth. We are more like a sailboat that God is the one providing the wind. God is the one providing the, the, the power to move us through the water. But we are the ones that are directing the sails. And sometimes that takes some effort. And so because all that's true, we've been talking about these spiritual practices, right? These, these things that we do in our relationship with Christ that lead to growth. These are the practices that help us to practice the presence of God. And we've been talking about these, these different disciplines, these core spiritual disciplines. And I've said there's three core ones, right? There's lots of things you can do to grow in your relationship with Christ that are sort of beyond the scope of this series. But there's three core critical ones that we all need. One is to hear from God. And we were talking about that the second week of the series. That's being in his word. The, the other one is talking to God, which is prayer. We talked about that last Sunday. And then today we're talking about worshiping God, and specifically we're talking about the church, what it means to be the church, what it means to gather with the church, what it means to be a part of, of a church. I want to give you a different picture before we move on. We're talking about this whole gospel foundation of spiritual growth um, and these practices that we do. So I want to, the example is this. The, it's a phone, right? This is an iPhone something, iPhone XR, I think doesn't say on the back. I think it's an iPhone XR. Now, this iPhone, do you know that the average smartphone has more computing power than all of NASA did to get to the moon? Do you know that? That's, that's a true fact. So the Apollo space missions that got, you know, America to the moon, got mankind to the moon, they had computers. They had powerful computers and top-of-the-line computers for their day, but they had, this has more power than the, the, the navigation computers and all the stuff that NASA was using to get the Apollo space missions to the moon. It, the, literally true. Um, this device, the phone, there's several different parts, right, that make up the, the phone, right? There's the, the actual hardware, the physical phone itself, all the little microchips and the different processors and things inside this. And quickly, you will discover, if you know a lot about computers, that you know about, more about them than I do. So I'm going to just, just a heads up on that. Um, that. Like, that guy's talking like he knows what he's talking about, but he doesn't know what he's talking about. It's true. I'll just tell you. You don't have to just think that. Um, but there, there is. There's processors in here. There's the memory. There's the the storage and all these different things, the physical phone itself, the actual device, the plastic thing, the glass screen, all of these things. This is the, the hardware, right? But the hardware is, is nothing without the software, the actual program, the operating system, the OS, we call that, that, that runs the phone, that makes the phone turn on, that runs the programs on the phone, right? So the operating system and the hardware together make up the, the kind of critical elements of the phone. Now, on the hardware, I have, I have apps. I've got all kinds of apps. I've got the Bible app where you can do the Bible reading plan um, with, with the church. I've got my social media stuff. There's, there's all the different apps on the phone. But I want to make a case that the gospel is that the practices that we do are more like apps on the phone. They are good things to have on the phone, but they are not... They, they, they will not make the phone run. Like if you don't have the hardware or you don't have the actual operating system that runs the phone, those apps are really useless. And I would say the gospel is the phone, <laughs> right? The gospel is the operating system that runs the phone. The gospel is the battery power. The gospel is all of the things that actually make it happen. 
And then my apps I install are these spiritual disciplines, these spiritual practices that I do that I cannot, that are powerless to do anything without God's grace, without the good news of Jesus, without what Jesus has done for us, that granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness and rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Man, all those things are the gospel. And my spiritual practices then are, I want to live in line with that and I want to grow in relationship with, with Jesus in my understanding of who he is and what he wants to do in my life and submitting more and more to my life, more of my life to him. Like the song we were singing, I surrender all. That's a, man, that is a practice. That's a decision we make. That's something that requires effort, but it's all fueled and powered by the gospel. Now, so today we're talking about the church. We're we're gathered together in this room. We're you know, viewing online those of you who aren't, aren't well or aren't able to be here today for different reasons. This is the church. We're gathering together with the church. And going to church, being the church, being a part of a church, I, I'm submitting to you, I think, is a very important part of spiritual growth. One of these three core disciplines that form this kind of foundation for our Christian life, hearing from God, talking to God, and worshiping God in the context of a community. Now, every week during this series, we've been looking to Jesus as a model for each of these practices. How did Jesus practice prayer? Like, what role did the Bible have in in Jesus' life when, when it came to hearing from God and talking to God? But when we think about the church, we think about doing what we're doing right now, worshiping in the context of a, of a local community. Where did that fit in Christ's life? And I want to just tell you up front, this sermon's going to be weird from here on out. Because this is kind of an interesting topic from the life of Jesus. And there's not like one passage that lays it all out there about what Jesus thought about the church. Uh, so we're, there's a whole bunch of scriptures we're going we're gonna to read through. And I'll try to keep an eye on the clock and make sure I don't go like... Um, really, really long to do that. But we're, typically what I like to do on a Sunday is we look at one passage of Scripture, we unpack that together, we look at the principles and, and things like that, make sure we understand that passage. This one's going to be like skipping along a bunch of different passages, so just a heads up on that. There is a meme, and I don't mean the funny picture with words on it, I mean the older version of the word meme, which is an idea that catches on with people. You know, this is a, the word meme comes from like the 90s. It was coined by Richard Dawkins back in the 1990s. And it, it was this way of describing the way ideas travel to different people, like the way that ideas spread. And a meme is like a catchy idea or a catchy practice or a catchy way of thinking that just is viral, so to speak, right? It just, it spreads. And so we use it to talk about the funny pictures online. That's the most common usage today. But I, but I mean it in the sense of an idea. There's this idea out there about Christians and about what Christians believe, and, and I'm going to share it with you, and you've heard it before. I'm going to tell you you've heard it before, before we even say it. But this catchy idea is this. I like Jesus, but I don't like, I don't like organized religion. Like, or I'm a very spiritual person, but I'm not into organized religion, or I don't know how I feel about organized religion. We've heard this in some form. <laughs> Right? This is a very co- common, very catchy idea. Now, I think the phrase organized religion is just inherently humorous because, because sometimes we're pretty disorganized. Right? Like I came, I came up here 
I, I, like, the service started, the countdown went to zero. I was in the bathroom. I didn't even, you know, it's like, that's not organized religion. Um, anyway, but also I like the phrase organized religion because it almost implies that there's something out there called disorganized religion, right, which I just find delightful. It's like, I'm not into organized religion, I'm into disorganized religion, you know. Um, and this phrase, though, let's talk about this phrase for a moment. Let's talk about, or, or people might even go further, and they go, Jesus didn't even mean to start something like the church. Like, that wasn't even his intention. Jesus was like this good, loving teacher that just came to spread love to people, and he, he was showing people what it was like to live a life of self-sacrifice, and he had no intention of starting something organized, right? This, people say this. So what is our response to this? How do, we, how do we think about this? It's a catchy idea. It is a meme. It spreads. That, that idea has, there's a lot of people that you will meet that will say something like that. And you might be thinking that even in this room or watching online. Let, let, me, let me ask you a question as we're considering Jesus and the church. And I want to ask you, how many times in the Gospels did Jesus talk about the church. Think about your answer for a moment. How many times did Jesus talk about the church? How many, would you, how many of you would say more than 10 times Jesus talked about the church? It's time to commit, everybody. How many? More, more than 10 times. Okay, how many would you say like less than 10, but, but more than five, between five and 10 times? Raise your hand. Now, no one wants to raise their hand. Be courageous, church. Okay, the answer is two. Jesus used the word church twice. It's a Greek word, ekklesia, that gets translated church. And he mentioned the church twice, which almost, now you're getting nervous, right? Because I just said, like, Jesus never intended to, you know, the, the, the thing that's out there is that Jesus never intended to start the church. He had no idea that this would happen. That wasn't his plan. And he only mentioned it twice. Like, what do we do about that? One of the scholars that I was reading in, in preparation for this morning's message says, um, you should, don't feel like you need to count the number of times Jesus men mentioned the church, but you should weigh the number of times Jesus mentioned the church. And I'll, I'll, it'll make more sense when we get to those verses uh, a couple minutes later. They're, they're both in Matthew, and we're going to look at one of them, and I'll tell you about the other one in a few, few minutes. But when we're thinking about Jesus and spiritual community, Jesus and the practice of gathering with other believers for worship, like what did Jesus actually do in his ministry, because that'll be helpful in helping us understand what Jesus thought about the church. So again, I mentioned we're going to be in a lot of different places. One is Luke chapter 4, verse 16. And I want you to see Jesus' practice, what, the way he lived his life, his spiritual practices when it came to spiritual community. So Luke chapter 4 Verse 16, this is early in his ministry, and it says this, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. So we see Jesus in this verse doing you know, the, 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 the thing that was his custom, which is it is the Sabbath day, so it's time for worship. And the way that he did that before you know, he died on the cross, was he worshipped with the synagogue, this sort of proto-church, you know, the thing that was the church before the church, which was the gathering of Jewish believers in these local communities where when there was enough 
of a, of a quorum of people to establish a synagogue. They would establish a place as a synagogue. And, and it was the church, essentially, um, outside in these, in these villages. So he went to the synagogue, and it was time for the reading of Scripture. And he stood up to read, and we're not going to continue um, reading that portion. But we see here that it was his custom, that he was, he was devoted to the regular practice of attending the synagogue on the Sabbath day for worship. This is something that Jesus did. We also see Jesus gathering a community, developing and forming a, a, a community of people that would be with him. Who, who do we call those people? The disciples, right? And he's there to teach them, but, but he's there, they're there to support each other mutually, and it's this, this little community of people that he gathers around himself. In Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 15, describe... Um, him calling his disciples this way. It says, And he went up on the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And then it gives a list of the different apostles' names, the disciples' names. And, and what I want you to notice about that verse we just read is it says, he, he called to him those whom he desired, they came to him, and he appointed 12 so that they might be with him, right? That he gathers this community of people that would be with him, and these people would form, of course, the future leaders of the church, but they would be his disciples, right? Which was a pre-agreed upon relationship in the ancient time. This is, you know, if you and I had a conversation if you're new to church or something, and I said, I want you to be my disciple, right? This is, this is not a, we, we do use this phrase certainly in church circles, but outside the church, this is not a commonly known way of, of describing a relationship between a teacher and a student, but that's exactly what it is. It's this teacher-student relationship, but it's in this instant spiritual community where Jesus models for them what he's going to want them to live out, what he's going to want them to teach, and he teaches for them. He teaches them, he trains them, right? He sends them out, even with the authority to cast out demons and that they might go out and preach as well and continue to spread his message. Later, we're going to, we're going to see one of the verses. Actually, right now, we're going to look at one of the verses. Matthew 16, verse 18 is the next verse we're going to look at. And this is one of two times that Jesus says the word church, Right? So the other time that Jesus says the word church is in Matthew, and it's about how the, the church relationship would work in terms of sin. And he talks about people straying away from the faith or straying away from the truth and how things should be handled. And he's like, you, go, you should go and talk to the person individually. And if they're not responsive, then you should bring someone else to go with you and talk to the person and say, you've got to come back to the truth. You've got to come back on the right path here. And he says, and they're still not responsive. Tell it to the church, he says. And it's this description of how, how this should work, how, how calling people back from straying away from faith should work. And then in Matthew 16, there, there's the, this is the passage where Jesus is talking to the disciples. He's having this conversation with Peter. He says, who do people say that I am? He says, some say, some say that like you're John the Baptist or you're like this prophet you know, that Moses talked about that would one day come and and, and be this ultimate prophet. And he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, well, I, I say you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds 
to that statement, this confession of Peter, you are the Christ, by telling him that your, your name is Peter. Um, and then Matthew 16, 18 says, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, Jesus says here, this phrase, like we say, if we only count, there's only two, but if you weigh them, the number of times Jesus mentions the church, this one weighs a lot. On this rock, I will build my church. Jesus makes this this statement here that he has intentions for something called the church that is going to come from his life and ministry. I will build my church. I will build this thing called the church. It's the ecclesia. It simply means the gathering. It's this gathering of people, you know, with, with this common purpose and common goal and this thing that they unify around. And it's, it's the church. I will build my church. That Jesus had the intention from the beginning to build something called the church. That he would bring people together the disciples would come and they would form communities of faith called the church. So when the early church, with Jesus teaching fresh in their mind, when they started something, like when Jesus sent them out, right? Jesus died on the cross for their sins, rose from the dead. The disciples scattered, but he had to regather them. Come back, everybody, I forgive you. He ascended or he, he's there with his disciples in these final moments of empowerment for them as he leaves. He's like, you've been watching me now for three years, and I've got a mission for you. I want you to go and make disciples. What I did with you, I want you to do with other people. And then Jesus right, gives them this call, go make disciples of all nations. And then in the book of Acts, he says, I want you to go to the ends of the earth with the message of, of, of me. But he says, I want you to wait for empowerment. You need to be prepared for this. You need the Holy Spirit. And so on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out. And Peter stands up to teach. And something is born in that moment when he stands up to teach on the day of Pentecost called the church. Thousands of people come to Christ in this one moment. And we have this great verse that we read often here at Life Roads because it describes what the church is supposed to be and what we're supposed to be about so well. It's Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It's this description of this little snapshot, like a picture of this moment in time of the early church. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So they immediately formed this community where they would live out this call to discipleship and this life. And it says they were devoted to these things, to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. that Their life together was embodied by these four things. And then it began to spread, right? And initially it stayed in Jerusalem, but then persecution began to happen and, and people were scattered. And everywhere they went, they went spreading the message of Jesus. And communities began to form all over the ancient world called churches. And then the rest of the New Testament is very clear that the church is something that matters to God. And it gives instructions about how to... How to live within the church, how the churches should act to each other. A lot of these New Testament letters, um, the epistles are written to churches to solve problems or to encourage them or to help them with their different things. But the word church is used constantly starting in the book of Acts and continuing all the rest through the rest of the New Testament. But we've seen Jesus' practice 
We've seen what Jesus' disciples did when it was fresh in their mind. What does Jesus want us to do now? They immediately started churches. They immediately started communities where people could be together and be devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And then there's several pictures given to us of what the church is supposed to be. And there's different metaphors, right, that are used. And there's this, um, the, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the family of, of God, right? There's all these metaphors that are given uh, in the rest of the New Testament to think about what the church is supposed to be. And I was thinking about um, several of these metaphors. One of them is the, the body, right? This is a, um, an interesting one, that we are the body of Christ, the local church the, the church as a whole, right, all over the world is the body of Christ, but also these local gatherings of faith. We're the body of Christ. And we're told in these, in these scriptures that Christ is the head and that we are the body. We're like the hands, the feet, the eyes, the you know, different aspects of the body, but Christ is the head of the body. And you know those little, I don't know what these things are called, but when you go to some kind of tourist destination, they have those big picture things where there's a little hole for you to stick your head in, and then someone takes a picture. And those, those can be anything, right? There's like a wide variety of what they could, you, you could put your head through a hole that makes you look like a little kid with a pinwheel cap and a, you know, giant lollipop or something, right? Or, or like you're a mermaid, you know, and there's King Triton with a spear next to you, and the two of you take the picture. Or there's the, you know, you're, whatever, you're a manatee or something like that, right? You know what I'm talking about. I've described it enough. Right? What makes those pictures funny is the contrast between the head and the body. You know, it's a five-year-old girl and it's a big muscle, muscular man, you know, and so that's why it's funny. Um, that should never be true of the church, right? That the head and the body should fit together. It shouldn't be this weird contrast between the head and the body. If Christ is the head of the church and we are his body, then it shouldn't be like one of those picture-taking spots, Right? It should match really well. We, we, should, we should look. It should fit. That, that the way we should be as a church, the way we should live out our lives as a local church is matching the head. When the world looks at us, the head and the body should match. Now, it's important that we talk about some of the challenges to this, right? Because we, we have so many people, that meme, the reason why that idea is so catchy, I think, the, the idea that like, Jesus, I don't like organized religion, right? The church has done bad things. Or churches are, can be dysfunctional. And, and I want to say that that's true, right? That, that we, churches are made up of people, and people are messy, right? Um, my, every one of us, right? None of us are perfect. And I've heard someone say, if you find a perfect church, don't go there because you'll spoil it, you know, you'll ruin it. Um, and, and, it's true that like, there is no perfect church, right? but our, but our goal is to, to fit the head. right? We want to match as much as possible Christ who is our head and we are his body and we want it to match and fit well together. And so there's this ideal that we seek to live up to and we want to do that and we, we, we pray and, and work to have unity and health as a church and embody what this looks like to be a community of people following Jesus together being devoted to the teachings of Christ, praying together, receiving communion, worshiping together, lifting up our voices. And it's so important in a world where 
there's a short, you know, like there's not enough of them, right, of healthy churches and of people who are really living this out well together to be the kind of church that does do that. I've been around the church for a long time. I grew up in, in, in churches, I, I, in, and I, you know, have been the pastor of a church now. By the way, next Sunday, 14, or 13 years, and I'll be starting my 14th year of ministry here as the lead pastor of Life Roads, but I was here at the very beginning. Thank you. Appreciate that. And I saw, I've got, if you have a list of grievances against churches, like people, like bad church experiences, I think my list is longer maybe than yours. The ones I've heard, the ones that I've experienced, the ones that I, that I know of, you know, that, like just being around other pastors and churches and hearing stories over decades. Like I know, I know it can be messy sometimes. I know it can be messed up sometimes. But that, that should not keep us from, from working towards this ideal and, and doing our best to protect the church and to love the church. And, and that's true for a number of reasons. I was thinking about the, the early church and how they formed their community, right? They immediately organized themselves around the apostles' teaching and the prayers, the breaking of bread, the fellowship, and, and all of this stuff. And I wonder why they did that, right? Why did, why did they do that? Why did they immediately form churches? Well, it's because they needed it and because they were told to, that Jesus would build his church and they were the ones that were carrying out the mission of Jesus. They saw it modeled by Jesus. And they said, this is something we need. And, and they, they did this, right? They carried out this mission of starting the church and building the church that Jesus said he would build. They're just doing their part. They're playing their role. So I say for every Christian out there, you know, and again, a lot of Christians have had rough church experiences, and so they go, I guess I don't need that. I'm going to step away from church. I don't need to go to these gatherings, and I don't really see the point of it. Say, so you need the church. Every, every Christian needs to be a part of a community of faith. And there's lots of variations of what that looks like, and I, I will certainly give that. But we need this. We need it. Now, um, I, I like backpacking. There's something, and, I, and I, I, you know, you put the backpack on, I mean like camping, right? You're go, going away for a couple of days, and you have everything you need in your bag. And I love, I love the idea of it just as much as I like doing it. Um, I, I like the idea of going like, I'm, I can go out into the wilderness, like far away from civilization, and I can be completely self-sufficient for multiple days. Like that idea is just fun for me. Like I like that. I got everything I need out there. I'm all set out in the wild and I'm completely self-sufficient. The idea just is great. I like that. I like the gear. Like I have way too much gear for the amount of times I actually go backpacking, you know. Um, but the idea of that's great. Like I like the idea of being self-sufficient, self-sustained, just going out in the wilderness and I'm good to go for multiple days. That's great. Now, I want you to imagine, if you were a Christian who said, like, you disagreed with the thing I said a few moments ago about you need the church, right? You go, actually, I don't need the church. I disagree with you. And you go, I am a completely self-sustained, self-sufficient Christian. I have everything I need. I've got my Bible. I've got the latest Christian bestseller. And I've got my Hillsong Spotify list. And I, I don't need the church, right? I am... 
I am completely self-sustained, self-sufficient. It's like me in the backpack, and I've got all I need for my own spiritual growth. And let's say, let's pretend together that that's true. You're right, you don't. We Like, wow, you really are completely self-sufficient. You don't need the community around you. That does nothing to the fact that this next statement is true, and it's this, the church needs you. Right? It's not just a one-way thing. I don't need the church, and I'm completely self-sufficient. Okay, fine, let's pretend that's true. The church needs you. There are people that need your ministry. There are people that need your encouragement, that need your prayers. They need you to use your gifts to serve in the community. Like The church needs you, and you need the church. You need someone asking you, you know, you, someone needs you to ask how they're doing and, and to pray with them. And I, I love our church. I'm so grateful for our church. We're coming up on 20 years of ministry in September of this year, which is mind-boggling. Like I moved here to Spokane to help start this church, and I, I love what God has done through our church. And so, listen, a lot of people are critics of church, the idea of church, um, local churches in particular. The church has plenty of critics, and I don't think it has enough advocates, enough people who promote it and say, this is something beautiful, this is something good, this is something wonderful. It's imperfect, it's made up of imperfect people. The only perfect church will be in heaven, right? But man, there's something about even even the dysfunction sometimes that is, that is beautiful about a group of people coming together, uniting their voices in, in, in song and, and learning from God's word and just being together and the practice and the regular discipline of being the church that is just beautiful. A few weeks ago, I got to sit in one of the seats over here and I had no responsibilities on a Sunday morning. It was the first Sunday after New Year's, and I got to sit, and uh, I got to sit next to my parents in church, which is not an experience I've had in a long time. And I was like, I could sit anywhere. I'm going to sit next to my parents. Like, I grew up doing that. I haven't done that in a very long time, and I got to just sit in the seat, and Kylan was preaching, and I didn't even have to host or anything. I had no responsibilities. I just got to be here as an attendee, and it was, it was special to just feel myself as a part of the church to sit there and to sing with the voices around me and to hear from God's word. And I even had like a weird moment where Kylan mentioned my name and I felt my face redden. I was like, like, oh no, I'm, he's calling me out. You know, I was like, what? What did I do? You know, and I literally, I had an experience when I was like 12 where the pastor yelled at me in church because I was causing a ruckus in the back of the auditorium. Me and my buddy were back there. Like we didn't realize how loud we were being and we were, we were just causing problems, and the pastor's like, you kids, knock it off, in the middle of his sermon. <laughs> and that was kind of how I felt when Kyle had mentioned my name. That kind of like that feeling came back, and it wasn't anything bad, but it was just this funny little moment. But there's something special about being the church and about being with the church. This is a place where we get to be with Jesus. If we were the body of Christ, the closest thing we can experience to being with Christ physically this side of heaven is to be with the church. To be together and to sing together and to gather. And, and this, is, this is special. And we need it. And we need you. 
when we were talking about Jesus' practices earlier, there's one practice I saved um, for the end of the sermon here, and it's in Matthew chapter 26, verse 30, which is it's kind of a short, abrupt, abrupt verse. This is the end of the gathering of um, the apostles on the night that Jesus was arrested. And Matthew chapter 26, um, verse 30, it says that after the Passover meal, so they're together, he's been teaching, he's been praying, and it says, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And I, I don't have a very good picture in my mind of, of a singing Jesus, right? You think about like whatever, whatever is in your imagination about Jesus, singing is not in mind. Like I, I, I forget about this verse. I, I, this is such a funny verse to me. It's like, of course Jesus sang, right? But I, I just don't ever think about it. It's the only time mentioned here. There are other passages that sort of allude to, to uh, Jesus singing, but this, this is such a cool verse. This is part of what he did with his disciples, right? They're gathered together, and it says they sang together, and then they went out to the Mount of Olives, and everything progressed, and then he died on the cross, and the world was given life and salvation, right? Singing is important. I mentioned the, at the beginning of the service that we do this each week when we gather together, and this is a critical piece of, of what the church does when we gather, and it's always been true, even from there, even at the very beginning, right? There's this um, theologian named Ralph Martin. He says, the church was born in song, Right, if you look at this verse, right before the church is born because of the cross, it, he's singing. And this is something that Christians have always done, right? And that this is, this is something that we do. And singing, I don't know for you, if you were thinking about like the last time you sang with a group of people outside this room or outside a church, it's like it was someone's birthday and we sang happy birthday to them, you know? That's probably it. Or... You know, I was at a Spokane Indians baseball game and we sang, take me out to the ball game, the seventh inning stretch thing. I don't know. That, that We don't tend to do this in our culture. Like in previous years, we sang together a lot more. People would just sing. That was a part of life more. But in church, this is such a, an important piece of, of what we do and it's an important part of who we are. And there's something that we embody about what it means to be the church when we sing together. And so we're going to have another opportunity to sing together in just a few moments. There was a story back in the, I think it was the 80s, 1980s, where um, there were some whales trapped under a sheet of ice in the Arctic. There was a movie made about it recently, um, I think within the last 10 years. And these whales were trapped and these people discovered it. It was up in Point Barrow, Alaska. And I want to read you a selection of an article here from Craig Brian Larson from Leadership Magazine. He says, Not long ago, the world watched as three gray whales, icebound off of Point Barrow, Alaska, floated battered and bloody, gasping for breath at a hole in the ice. Their only hope somehow to be transported five minutes past the ice pack to open sea. Rescuers began cutting a string of breathing holes about 20 yards apart in the six-inch thick ice. For eight days... They coaxed the whales from one hole to the next, mile after mile. Um, along the way, one of the trio vanished and was presumed dead. But finally, with the help of a Russian icebreakers, the whales swam to freedom. Two whales, so these gray whales. 
And he says this about the church, the point he's making. In a way, worship is a string of breathing holes the Lord provides his people. Battered and bruised in a world frozen over with greed, selfishness, and hatred, we, we rise for air in church, a place to breathe again, to be loved and encouraged until that day when the Lord forever shatters the ice cap. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the church. I thank you for this place. I thank you for your faithfulness and your goodness. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be advocates and, and people who love the church. Help us to pass that on to the next generation too. Help us to teach them to love the church. Help us to work towards making this a great church and to make it a healthy church, Lord, but also to just to, to magnify just the concept of church in a world where this is criticized a lot. Help us to be people, voices in the positive for this and for what we are doing and for why this matters and why we need this and why we need the people who are even critics of the church. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be the kind of community that embodies what it means to be your body, to be your hands and your feet. Lord, we are, your word describes us as the, the bride of Christ and the family of God. And Lord, I thank you for that truth and I pray that you would help us, Lord, to, to take um, joy in that, to be grateful for that. And Lord, I pray that you'd bless each and every person who's a part of our community. Lord, help us to to live this out well, this thing that you are building, that you promised to build, that the gates of hell would not prevail against. Lord, the world needs the church. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be a good one, and I pray that you'd help us to um, just make this our practice as we practice your presence. And, Lord, this is a complicated time to be doing that, Lord. This, it's confusing how to think about the pandemic and how to think about world events and all of these things, Lord. But, but Lord, I pray that even in these critical moments, you would help us to, to live this out well. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with me?